morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where it is you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work and CEO of PeopleRain, an AI-first platform for IT and HR employee service. If you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to our newsletter. It's at peoplerain.io slash podcast. That's people, rain, like the reign of a king, R-E-I-G-N dot I-O slash podcast to get bonus content and additional insights from past guests. As you know, we talk about the future of work on this podcast, but you know, one of the topics we haven't covered is what it's like to be an employee and have to navigate the complex process of going on leave, whether that's maternity, paternity, medical, or any other type. Today's guest was inspired by the idea that employees shouldn't need to decide between people they love and jobs they love. Increasingly, HR is focused on compliance tasks and even employee safety. There's no time left to help employees feel supported when they're often at their most vulnerable. We'll see employers investing much more in employee benefits, including mental well-being, mental health in the years ahead. I hope that companies like Sparrow inspire a wave of innovation that makes it easier to take better care of employees. We're lucky to be joined today by Deborah Hannes, Sparrow CEO, who turned just that vision into a successful company. Deborah, welcome to the podcast. Let's, uh, let's get started by having you describe your background and the founding vision behind Sparrow. Thank you so much, Dan, and thank you for having me on the show. My background is actually in computer science and machine learning, and um, I was coming up on 30 and all of my close friends from college started having children, like, you know, happens to a lot of people. And I found that in, in this one six month period, six of my close friends from college had children and all of them had to go through the process of filing for short term disability, paid family leave. All of them complained about it. All of them struggled with it. Half of them ended up actually messing things up with the process and uh, not getting paid properly and then needing to file appeals. And I started thinking, you know, if this is so difficult for my friends who are all, for the most part, Harvard and MIT grads with amazing jobs in tech, chances are this is a, a large problem for a lot of other people as well. And then in the process of that, I started looking into how companies were managing the process. And I found that the process was almost more frustrating for companies. You know, for small to medium businesses, generally, you don't People who start businesses are just people like you, me, or anyone else. They don't have any superhuman um, compliance knowledge. So for them, this is really a lot to figure out. Um, so there are sort of three things that small to medium businesses are doing. One is uh, they're, they don't know about any of the paperwork. They don't know about that. They don't know that they could be saving a lot of money each when an employee goes out on leave. A lot of small to medium businesses Either they don't know about the paperwork, um, so they just don't do anything with it, or they know there's paperwork that could save them some money, but they don't know how, but they don't have the time to figure it out. So they just pay the employee their whole salary while they're out on leave. Or they say, I know there's this paperwork. It would be great if we could figure it out. So I'll have the employee who's going out on leave figure it out. This is actually probably the most common, and this is what happened to all of my friends. But often in this case, um, what ends up happening is the employee does their best, but they're going out. They they're going on leave because they just had a major life event. So they actually have even less time to figure this out than anyone else. 
So then usually they'll end up making mistakes, not getting paid properly. And then when they go back to the company, the company doesn't know how to fix the problem, which just makes the employee feel underappreciated. And then we started, so that's how um, small to medium businesses are often managing this. Um, and then we went to, uh, then we started uh, looking into more how larger companies are managing the process. And we found that for small companies, generally, they're sort of not, as we saw, they're sort of not managing the process. And as such, they're offering shorter leave because they think that's all they can afford. Whereas actually almost most companies are eligible either through insurance or state benefits for roughly half of the employee's salary to be paid by uh, an insurance policy, um, at which point they could be saving, you know, $10,000 to $30,000 per leave. And if they think they can offer a two-week leave, they can actually probably offer a four to six-week leave. And then for larger companies, normally they're filing the paperwork and they're starting to manage the process, but um, it's taking them a lot of time. It takes on the order of 10 to 20 hours for someone in HR to manage one leave. And when five to 10% of your workforce goes out on leave every year, that means even at a 500 person company, you're probably looking at hundreds to thousands of hours per year that you're spending on this. So what Sparrow does is we just try to abstract all of that away, both for HR and the employee, and you really manage that process end to end. And because we're doing it all the time, we're able to provide a much more streamlined experience. So I put Sparrow in a narrow cohort of companies in Silicon Valley that is doing well by doing good. To the extent you, you agree that, that that's kind of a, a unique domain to be in, talk us through how you use that as, a, uh, as an asset, whether when you're fundraising or when you're hiring, um, the fact that you have a genuine desire to improve work life for employees and you're building a business, you identified an opportunity that relates to that. Yeah, absolutely. That is that is something that was very important to me um, as we as I was wor working on starting Sparrow. I did want to find a way to start a company where not not only is it a company where people can enjoy coming to work, but that also has largely positive impacts. And I think that Sparrow is really doing an amazing job with that, in that it is. There, there are really no losers. Um, you know, HR, we help HR with a process that they never wanted to manage in the first place because it's a lot of boring paperwork. Help the employee with that process as well, providing a better employee experience. And then in the meantime, we're, and then they just pay us for the service that we're providing um, so that we can keep doing it for more and more people and make it so that more and more companies can offer uh, generous, generous leave policies that are not only, not only generous, but also do all of the things that you would want a leave policy to do. We find that often a lot of, another thing that, um, another way in which we are often helpful to companies is that we will find, we found that all leave policies are often a little bit broken. <laughs> um, and I think that the reason they're broken is just that they're written by lawyers who understand all of the laws, but they don't necessarily know all of the edge cases that might, and some of the situations that might come up um, in a leave policy. So a common example that we see is, you know, if a policy uses language like uh, maternity leave and paternity leave, you can easily end up in a situation where uh, two women who have a child together might have twice as much leave as two men who have a child together. You know, it's not something that, you know, anyone really wants to happen in the leave policy. It's just a situation that 
usually the lawyers didn't think to think through when they were writing the policy. So because we're looking at policies all day, every day, we're sort of able to make it so that these leave policy, make it so that people's leave policies take into account some of these, some of these edge cases in more unusual situations so that as the company scales and they see more and more cases of leave, they're able to ensure that their policy does what they expect it to do. And I think, and I think that managing to do, managing to create a situation in which all of the incentives are in line for both customers, um, Sparrow and the you know, employees who are helping has been very helpful both in terms of, I think it's helpful largely for our company culture. I think it's really nice in that the team is, in some ways the team feels a little bit like a nonprofit in which, you know, the nice thing about working with nonprofits is usually everyone is very, if you're working in a nonprofit, you're probably there because you really care about the mission and you want to be, and you, under, you care about the problem and you want to be making a difference. And I think that that's true of everyone on the Sparrow team right now. But um, unlike a nonprofit, we're also able because we have the funding, the funding to and you know the the customers and the revenue streams in order to back that up. We're also able to you know, make sure that we're developing really efficient processes so that you know we can move more like uh, a much more you know move like a nimble startup um, while having uh, the impacts of something more mission-driven like a nonprofit. Now, I'd imagine the pandemic has dramatically impacted leave behavior. I, I could imagine that because of increased pressures, anxieties, there's a need for more employees to be taking, I guess, call it a medical, a non-maternity, non-paternity leave, uh, particularly when it comes to child care, elder care, et cetera. And yet, I imagine there's also maybe a reluctance to take the leave that they need out of concern for their job stability, company stability. What have you seen in terms of the pandemic's impact on leave behavior? Yeah, absolutely. So there were a number of large changes, um, one of which was just there were a number of changes in regulations um, at, as the you know, Families First Coronavirus Response Act came out. So that, that means that you know, if people needed to take time off of work due to coronavirus activities, that's something which, um, if you track that time, then often you can um, write, write it off later on your taxes. Um, there are also, um, it also has, like, as you said, it has impacted the number of medical leaves. If you um, are quarantined due to coronavirus in a lot of states, that counts as a medical leave. Um, even if you don't necessarily have coronavirus. And then on top of that, there are many coronavirus-related cases. In other well. words, if you're a non-essential worker, you're quarantined, even if your employer still expects you to work, you could take a leave because you're quarantined. Yes, in some states. Um, so, so it has definitely, so we have definitely seen a, we have definitely seen an increase um, in leaves among our current customers. And then I think that because there have been, because there have been all these changes in regulations as well, I think that we've had a lot of our customers coming to us to sort of help, help make sure that they understand what they need to do and help, help them with some of those policies surrounding that as well. So I'd say that those are probably the major change, changes that we've seen with coronavirus. One of the 
things that I'd imagine the pandemic might have done, and you, you're, you're certainly the expert here, exaggerate maybe gender imbalances when it comes to leave policies. And the thing that I'm, again, correct me, uh, but the thing I envision is that because more often than not, females tend to be caregivers, again, more, you know, not, not to overgeneralize, but two parents of any gender in the house does the additional burden, the, you know, the stress associated with being quarantined. Um, are, are you seeing any evidence that it unequally or unfairly um, is, is impacting females? Yeah, so I don't think that we've necessarily seen, and I'm not even sure we have a data set large enough to draw any conclusions from um, how, how that is impacting um, things in terms of leave. I would definitely say that there is, you know, just due to uh, social expectations and uh, the gender norms that are out there right now, you know, women do often end up taking on more caregiving responsibilities. And then because of that, um, I think that they do often, certainly they're finding um, things a bit more stressful. Now, if, if that was the situation prior to coronavirus, if you suddenly find anyone, man or woman, who finds themselves in the situation of trying to take care of small children or sick family members at the same time as working full time, is definitely going to be in, in a very stressful situation right now. So, and I think that, that that is part of the, was part of the reasoning between families for Coronavirus Response Act was trying to make it a little bit easier for employers to be more understanding and more flexible um, with their employees without necessarily bearing all the costs themselves. Is there evidence that, again, for non-paternity, non-maternity leave, employees avoid requesting it because of either the complexity or concern for their job or is that is that something that's well documented i think it depends a it depends a lot on what role you're in and what the company's leave policies are i think that um and on, i'd say one thing that is certainly true um is i'd say even just looking at you know maternity leave and paternity leave everyone, as if you were going on a maternity leave, you sort of almost have to take some sort of leave because you're recovering from a major medical procedure and it's physically extremely difficult to work for several weeks afterwards. But part of that is also, you know, for bonding with a child, um, learning how to, learning how to care for a child if it's your first child. And um, I think that there definitely is a lot of pressure even among social pressure even in companies where there are generous uh, paternity leave policies. I think often there is social pressure to return to work quickly, um, which I think all really um, widens the gen gender gap in that, you know, really, if you have two new parents, neither one knows how to be a parent um, when they have their first child. And um, right now, a lot of policies make it so women then have maybe eight to 12 weeks of maternity leave, um, at which point that's eight to 12 weeks that they're spending learning how to be a parent. Whereas if the father only has a few weeks of leave, probably he'll spend a lot of that time. He'll just have less time to learn how to be a parent on his own. And instead, he, I think it sets uh, fathers up as more sort of a helper role as opposed to really taking the lead 
on raising the children, which then sort of, which if they then feel like a helper, someone who doesn't have the full confidence to sort of manage their, manage and fully parent, parent their child, um, you know, that's something that then is going to impact caregiver, the full caregiver's role for years to come. So I do think that it is very important that companies try to provide as equal of leave as possible so that, and generally when I'm talking, generally when I advise people on this, I suggest even stacking your, stacking parental leaves, maybe take a cup, often you can, uh, you don't need to take it all at once, maybe have both of them take a week right after the child comes, and then at the end maybe have someone have one parent finish their leave and then have the other parent finish their leave so that they can both really learn how to be a parent on their own and learn what that process is like um, so that neither one uh, needs to assume a helper role. You know, a lot of dads listening and like me, they may have felt social pressure or career pressure when they had kids. I have two daughters, 10 and 12, to take the minimum amount of leave either possible or you know, independent of maybe what the law provides. Are there any policies that you'd advocate for that would change the perception, even the stigma attached to taking a paternity leave? Yeah, absolutely. So I, first of all, I, whenever possible, um, I we generally suggest that if, if it's financially feasible for the company that we provide, that they provide equal parental leave. So if they're providing 12 weeks of um, maternity leave, provide 12 weeks of paternity leave as well. Because then uh, this not only, it not only allows fathers to take a more secondary caregivers to take a more active role in their child's life um, and a more active role in parenting, but it also helps um, decrease the wage gap as well. Because I mean, well, no one likes to talk about it. There certainly is people do still sometimes have concern that women are going to take leave and thus end up paying them less. Whereas if there's a risk that um, either a man or a woman might take a three month leave at any time, then it sort of, it eliminates the reasons to, or the sort of bias to um, discriminate against women in that way. I wanna to shift to spare the company now and you as a leader. We were talking offline the other day, and uh, you had some great advice about hiring and some of the questions and interviews that work for you. Um, what has worked for you as, when it comes to uh, building and retaining a team and, and in the selection process? Yeah, absolutely. That is a, a very large question, um, which I will probably only be able to answer a small piece of. So to start off with, um, I think we do have we do have a huge advantage because we are able to be mission driven. I think that a lot of people do they really want to work they want to work with they want to be able to accomplish a lot and have a large impact. They want to like the people they work with, and they also want to feel good about what the company is doing as a whole. Feel like they're contributing to something good in the world. Um, and I think that that is, uh, that's something that we do filter for in the interview process. And I think that it has done, all, it's done a lot to uh, help, you know, help the, help the team grow into what it is. Some of the things I'd say when we're hiring, there are a few things that um, we look out for. One is we try to hire people who are empathetic. 
I this is especially important for people who are helping people go through their leave because you know it's really is a it's a even if you're going out on leave for something good like you just became a parent um, it is a stressful time in your life where you have a lot going on so we try to hire people who are empathetic who are great communicators who can sort of take complicated information and make it simple and most importantly we try to hire for people who are very self-aware because it's um, you want people who know what they don't know. Sort of the worst case scenario is if someone doesn't know something and then they give incorrect information. Whereas if you hire someone who doesn't know something but they know to ask, uh, then you know the right thing still happens. <laughs> so I'd say we started out we started out looking for those characteristics um, in the people who help to manage leaves for us, and we found very quickly that. These are actually characteristics that we want for everyone on the team. These are the characteristics we want from our engineers. And it just makes the entire team a lot, a lot more fun to work with. Um, so I said that those are some, those are some of the main things that we, we really focus on when we're building the team. So roll back the clock even further from hiring and retention to fundraising. Talk us through what it was like raising for Sparrow, the concept of Sparrow, in a venture community that tends to favor uh, deep tech and often, you know, this may be somewhat controversial, but often themes that are better understood in a male-dominated field tend to be the ones that get funded or funded at higher valuations. What was your fundraising journey like? Yeah, that, that is an interesting question. So at this point, I've raised for Sparrow twice. Um, we raised a, and we were at very different stages of the company at each time. Um, first, we raised a uh, pre-seed round uh, around the end of 2018. And at that point, um, we were, the entire team was me. Um, I was a solo founder and um, we had a few, we had a few beta customers, mostly small to medium businesses. We hadn't really gotten a lot of recurring revenue yet, but it seemed like there was some validation for the need. And that was something that I did, uh, I did by design. Some people asked me why I did not raise as soon as I had the idea. So I started, so I started working on the idea in uh, July 2018, and we didn't raise until more like the end of 2018. And the reason for that was I wanted to make, I think investors make investment decisions sort of based on, based on team traction, an idea. And I think I was just you know, very honest with myself about where I, where my idea and our Sparrow situation, how that would look to an investor. I'd say on the team, it's very certainly like as an individual, I look good. You know, I went to Harvard and MIT. I have a software background, sort of like checking a lot of boxes that investors look for. But as a solo founder, you're never going to get full points because, I mean, what if you get hit by, by a bus and die and really the company's dead? <laughs> um, just knowing that I wouldn't get full points on team, but I would probably have maybe you know, half points on team. And in terms of the idea, I think, I mean, I thought that it was a really good idea. I think that there's definitely, for someone who invests in B2B, I think there's a good argument for why it's a good idea. But that said, not everyone is going to understand it. Um, not everyone understands you know, all of the difficulties that go into this. 
And so then the third thing I needed um, was traction. Um, so then I did spend a few months you know, working, working on getting customers right away before I decided to fundraise. I would say that there are definitely, you don't need full points on all three of these things. You know, some, a team of um, founders with previous exits and a good story for how they're going to sell their idea. Maybe they don't need any traction. Maybe they can go in and raise funding right out of the gate. But, you know, as an unproven solo founder, my, I decided I needed traction. And the raise, the raise actually went relatively quickly at that point, I think largely because we weren't both, both I think it was a good idea. But that said, um, not everyone got it, definitely. I mean, a lot of people do not. There is certainly a type of investor, I think, that has not, if you, per, perhaps if you have not had a salary in a long time, salary compensation, um, you might not even understand how difficult it can be if there is a break in pay during your leave, which is actually a huge, you know, I would say a large part of the problems that we're solving. So not everyone got it, but it did, but I would say that the raise, the raise went well. The second time we raised, um, we had gotten a lot of, a lot of brand name customers, um, and we had really good revenue traction growth. We have zero churn to date, and I think with all of those metrics, um, it was it was a little bit easier. Um, it was a little bit easier to raise just because we had numbers to back back things up. But once again, I would say it was it is it is not an idea people are used to seeing, and I do think that you know every every investor in meeting, I need to spend a little bit of time um, getting them on board with uh, why why this is a business. So now you're, uh, you're coming up on two years and built an, um, clearly an amazing customer base. Congrats on zero churn to you and the team. I got a perspective on advice for other first time CEOs that are kind of just now maybe ideating. What, what is it that you got right? I think there are two major things that I, two major things that I've learned in the process. One is I think that we got lucky. Um, I do think that a lot of, to some extent, so when I started, when I started exploring ideas for Sparrow, I, ex I explored some related ideas as well. And I do think that a lot of founders, it can be very difficult. The two scarce resources you have as a founder are really morale and money. And I think that it can be very not good for morale, if you spend some time getting into an idea, you just use, to some extent, you don't know how big a business is going to be until you really get into the, the market and really become an expert in it, and that takes time. For some people, they pick an idea that is in a market where they're just the market just size just isn't large enough. Maybe everything else about the business was great, but the market size isn't large enough, and I think that it's difficult to keep going after that if you have too many sort of false starts like that, um, just because it depletes your morale. I think that and to some extent we got a little bit lucky in that we got into this area and the farther we get into the area, the more we're like, this is, you know, this is actually a much larger market than I even initially thought when we got started. So I think that that was that was one thing that was probably point one that was really helpful. I think the second thing I learned 
uh, which I, is that advice, um, a lot of the sort of standard advice that people think of as you know, just good practice for startups, I think on some level uh, is a little bit overfit to the data that is out there right now. Right now, the majority of founders are, you know, of course, uh, white men, um, or, you know, come from a certain demographic. And I think that I, that because 90 some founders come from that sort of demographic, that sort of background, a lot of the advice that we think of as just good advice for everyone is actually just really good advice for that demographic. And sort of the farther you get outside of that demographic, the less likely it is that that, that advice is necessarily going to apply to you. Um, an example of this is, uh, I know very early, very early in when I was working on Sparrow, I definitely had a lot of pressure to just pick a co-founder. And I think that, um, that is uh, really good advice. Certainly it's much easier to start a startup if you have a co-founder, just like it's much easier to parent a child if you have a good supportive relationship with a partner. But at the same time, uh, if you don't have someone who you work very well with and who you're you know, excited to start that process and really go in for the long haul with, but you still really want a child, for example, then probably you should take what seems like the slightly harder route. Just go ahead and have that child or start that startup. Deborah, I know time, time flies by, but uh, we're about out of time. I, I got to get in one, one last question for you. If you kind of polish your crystal ball and envision a world where Sparrow has made a dent in the universe, it's done exactly what you hoped, how is, how is life for employees different? Yeah, absolutely. So I would love to see um, all, all companies um, offering more leave, um, you know, on the order, I'd say more on the order of at least like three to six months. I'd say when I talk, people often, I think there's a sort of a mis misconception among employers that if you give an employee infinite leave, they will take infinite leave. Um, but really, most, most people I know who have been at companies that have a longer leave, at some point they get bored. They wanna go back to work because that's how people, I mean, people derive a lot of their self-worth and from their job. And um, you know, if you enjoy your job, you do want to get back to work at some point. And really the right amount of leave is the amount of leave where the employee has reached that point where they said, okay, I've had enough time at home and you know, I'm ready to go back to work and find that balance. So really, ideally, I would love to see you know, men and women having equal parental leave. Um, I would love to see, you know, that wage, that wage gap eliminated. Um, I would love to see an environment in which people feel, feel comfortable and feel prepared to start a leave. I think often one thing that can sometimes factor into the process is people will just I think sometimes, particularly when uh, leave is handled in-house, sometimes people feel uncomfortable saying everything that they want from their leave to HR. You know, if someone, for example, wants as much time as possible with their newborn, even if it's unpaid, um, that's something that not a lot of people feel comfortable saying uh, to a colleague. So I think making it so that people can 
feel like they understand what they're signing up for in a leave and not need to think about the bureaucracy or these other things and really just have whatever time they're out on leave to really focus on their focus on their family, focus on their health, focus on whatever reason they're taking leave, as opposed to you know thinking needing to worry about bureaucracy and all these other things. Fantastic, good uh, good wisdom. I hope that as some of these trends play out, maybe you'll come back and uh, we'll have a second version of this conversation. How's that work for you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Deborah, this has been excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. And of course, thank you all for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, again, go ahead and sign up for the newsletter. You'll get uh, special insights from great guests like Deborah. People reign like the reign of a king.io slash podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And we will be back next week with another fascinating discussion. Deborah, thanks again.